0: I also think that that's why sometimes we outgrow some churches and go to other churches. It isn't that you suddenly saw the light and found the right church or the better church. No, no, no. Maybe the way that church helped you connect with God was what you needed at that season of your life, that hour of need. Hi, everyone. This is Pastor Brandon McCulloch with the B-side for Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, a deeper Life. In this episode, we'll return to the four faces of God. We will talk about the way to read the Bible, RIP, the acronym R-I-P-P, with a clarification. We will revisit the wheel within the wheel, showing you an insight somebody showed me after the service, which I found profound. And we will talk about deep time. And then we will go to Revelation chapter 4 and compare John's vision with the one Ezekiel had. The Faces of God In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 10, he describes the creatures who are upholding the throne of God as having four faces. I read, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. So on the front, there's a human face. On the back, there's an eagle face. On the right, there's a lion face. And on the left, there's an ox face. In Revelation chapter 4, John sees four creatures who seem to make up the very throne of God. Yet these four creatures, who seem very similar to what Ezekiel's seeing... Rather than having four faces, each of the four creatures is one of the animals that those faces represent. So John sees a creature like a man, a creature like an ox, a creature like a lion, and a creature like an eagle. And it's been pointed out by many commentators that these represent some of the offices of Christ. That the lion is Christ as king, as demonstrated in the Gospel of Matthew. That Christ is servant represented by the ox in the gospel of mark uh, of christ as the son of man represented by the human face in uh, the gospel of luke and christ as the son of god the gospel of john as represented by the eagle now um i couldn't i couldn't re- I had to go dig this up and, and recall where this came from. I knew it came from a lot of modern commentators on Revelation, but I knew it went further back than that. And so, uh, I found the source, and it's from St. Victorinus. St. Victorinus was the first to comment on these four faces, these four creatures representing four aspects of Christ from the four Gospels. And he, he was way early in the church. He was born around 250 AD, 250 AD. That means the church is only about 200 years old. And he was martyred by the emperor Diocletian. So he's the one who first, at least as far as we know, that first had the insight of seeing the four Gospels portrayed in these four creatures to show us Christ. And many commentators have said that the four Gospels, we have four because we needed four different angles, four different perspectives, or four faces to portray Christ fully. And so in the message, I talked about how many of us are looking at the same God, but are relating to a different face. So, the face of the lion represents the royalty, the majesty, the power of God. In Matthew's gospel, he emphasizes Jesus as a teacher. Jesus gives teachings. He gives sermons. He lays down doctrine, specifically around something he calls in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, right? Matthew's gospel is the one that has the great sermon on the mount. It's the one that has a sermon about sending the disciples out and how to behave in a hostile world. It's the one that has so many of the parables. It's the one that has in chapter 18, the great sermon on forgiveness. It's the one that has the fire and brimstone fear-inspiring sermon against the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees and hypocrites. That's Matthew's gospel. And we can see in this gospel that this would appeal to people who love doctrine. And so the face of God as a lion is those who relate to God through hard and clear doctrines, theology, beliefs about God. They're people that want to fight for what's true in doctrine and expose uh, false doctrines. They may even be leaning toward apologetics. They love to know the details, the big, juicy words about God. They love to systematize theology. And this, we've seen historically, is common among the Calvinists and the Puritans and the Reformers, like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Now, going in this view does not mean that you have to be a Calvinist. It just—I'm just giving some examples of people who tend to see God this way, and of course, Calvary Chapel in many ways has seen God in this way. Um, Chuck Smith, Chuck Smith, undoubtedly related to God in this way. He taught us truth from the scriptures line by line. The Apostle Paul also related to God this way, who is the great uh, defender of the faith and laid down some important truths that we still hold to today. A lot of Paul's writings makes up a lot of our theology today. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, we mentioned. He was one who said, I'm not a fan of what's going on with the Catholic Church right now, so I'm going to uh, stand for something else that I see is right. And of course, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he found power in doctrine. And he preached doctrine clearly and powerfully. And he really changed London with his sermons. So that is seeing God through the face of the lion. Then we have the face of the ox or the bull. Now, the ox or the bull would have been very important to ancient people for plowing and harvesting. And so here we have this idea of fertility, of food, of harvest. And in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus as a preacher inviting people to the kingdom of God. He's also the servant who lays down his life for his friends. That's part of what The harvest is about, is laying ourselves down, showing the sacrifice of Christ, the cross of Christ, so that the world might be saved. So Mark, seeing God through the eyes of the bull, is a lot like the evangelicals. They see God as someone to be shared, as someone that people, sinful people, need to be restored to to find their place in God. So God must be announced, and we need to have altar calls, and we need to have people make decisions for Christ. You have this um, in the Bible in the Apostle Peter, who on the day of Pentecost stood up and and preached what the people were seeing, and it said that 3,000 souls were saved we see Peter go to the Gentiles. He was the, he brought the first Gentiles to Christ through one of his sermons. Then we think about uh, Billy Graham, and now more recently, Greg Laurie. That's the face of God through the ox. Third, we have the face of God through the eagle. And as the eagle soars up high and can see all things and has majestic heights, so does the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John has been called the most mystical of all the Gospels. It has been called a meditation on the life of Christ. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke essentially tell the same story with the same chronology, just with their uh, quirks in there, John takes a totally different approach. And he's the last to write, writing some 60 years after the life of Jesus, John at the end of his age in Ephesus is possibly writing his thoughts, his meditations on what Christ has meant to him for 60 years. So John, fully aware of the other gospels already existing, takes a totally different approach. And so it's been called the meditative gospel, the one that you can approach in that way. And so the the, the Christians who see God through the face of the eagle, they tend to be much more contemplative, much more meditative, uh, much more quiet God is someone that they relate to internally within them, not necessarily in the head through doctrine, not necessarily through acts of service or evangelism, um, but in the heart, there's a relationship that they cultivate. They're deep thinkers. They see, like the eagle from above, they can see many vantage points. They can relate to many people's perspectives. Uh, they, they're they into how the soul works and how the emotions work and how all of this is underneath the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So, biblically, an example of this is the Apostle John, who wrote the gospel and seems to think in these lines. But we also have Mary Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus, right, while her sister busied herself in the kitchen. Mary seemed to have been a contemplative, someone who wanted to ponder, to contemplate the things of God. Then in more recent times, we have Thomas Merton, who was a well-known monk who definitely saw God through this vein. And now in our current time, we have In the Calvary Circle, we have John Corson, whose teachings definitely soar in a different way than others. He doesn't focus on getting doctrines correct, although there's nothing wrong with his doctrines. He focuses on the heart and getting people to just see God and connect with God in creative ways. And then finally, we have the face of the human— Humans are the only species, as far as we know, that can show love and compassion for one another. And so, in the Gospel of Luke, this is the Jesus that we see. The Jesus of justice. The Jesus of action. The Jesus trying to bring right to a wrong world. The Jesus who loved those that society excluded and exiled. He loved the least, the last, and the lost. We see that Jesus has much more involvement with women in the Gospel of Luke than in any of the other Gospels. We see Jesus interacting with Samaritans in the Gospel of Luke. The only other mention of that is in John when he's talking to the woman at the well. Uh, we see Jesus emphasizing outsiders and Gentiles. And of course, Acts is part two of Luke. Uh, we see them definitely reaching out to the outsiders. And so in in Luke's gospel, Jesus is seen as opening his arms to the human race. And this is where we see Christians who relate to this face of God. They're activists. They're social justice advocates. They are into acting on behalf of people, righting wrongs, seeking justice. Sometimes they can prioritize this over everything else, that what it means to be a Christian is to do good works for people. So in contrast, um, those who see God through the face of the ox or the bull, uh, the the evangelicals, they want to save people's souls, but people who see God through the face of of, uh, of the human face, they want to save people's bodies. Right? And so, um, that's just one contrast that you can put up there. Uh, their doctrines tend to be, uh, whatever, I mean, whatever works, you know, they, they can be across the board because, uh, their, their main concern is not getting the doctrine right, it's getting people right. And, um, some examples of this in the Bible, you see Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an activist. He used his hands and a hammer and a sword to get that wall restored in Jerusalem. And you can read more about him in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we have Mother Teresa, well known around the world for her uh, good work with uh, people, uh, especially impoverished people. And more recently, we have Martin Luther King Jr., who put his faith to work by bringing civil rights to African Americans, and we also have a Dorothy Day and her work, uh, and and the list there can go on. They they're not necessarily always as prevalent to Christians because sometimes their names get um, thrown into you know decent human behavior kind of kind of thoughts. But so there there are the four faces, or the four ways that we can see and relate to God. It doesn't mean that any of these particular Christians are wrong. Now, of course, some Christians may have certain things that you disagree with, and they may be wrong, but that's not to jeopardize their salvation. God is large. He's dynamic. He's multiple-dimensioned. He can be connected. Other people can find connection with him in a number of ways. So, Just because I prefer one of these faces of God doesn't mean that I see him better than anybody else. And when you think about it, when you put these four faces together as they are in Ezekiel, you have a much more complete vision of who God would be on earth. God is about truth. God is about saving souls. God is about taking care of the human need and the human body. God is about restoring our inner life and helping us to connect with his deeper life. Like, he's about all of those things. Now, in my personal life, I've experience God in a number of these and i've noticed that they 've just been different phases of my life um, i've been through three of the four i 've never actually quite related to God through the human face um, now there's a lot of reasons for this and part of it's my personality style which finds interaction with human beings incredibly draining and i don't know that i'm wrong for that but I do look forward to the day when I can be more engaged in meeting human needs, um, that fourth face of God, Um, because then I'll finally circle through all of them, right? But it, it seems that at different seasons, perhaps you've noticed, at different seasons, you gravitate toward one or the other. And as you reflect, you may realize, yeah, you know what? I haven't just stared at God through one of these faces. I've actually moved a little bit. I used to be more like this, and I'm connecting with him this way. That's great. Honestly, we become more loving, more inclusive, more embracing, more patient, less judgmental if we can learn to relate to God in different ways. And if you only relate to him in one way, that's not at all to say that you're off or wrong or too narrow or too limited. That's how you tick. That's great. That's fine. The main thing to see here is that God works and reveals himself in many ways. And if he couldn't reveal himself through his son just in one gospel, well, then he's not going to reveal himself to us just one way. So rather than being critical of another person's relationship with God being different than yours, why not be curious and try to see your God through their eyes so that he can become bigger in your life a clarification on ripping scripture in Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 1 God says to Ezekiel son of man eat whatever you find here eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel So we closed our message with eating this book, the Bible. And in order to help us do that, I have this acronym, RIP, R-I-P-P. R, you read the passage. I, you read it sensitive to the impressions it's making on you. P, sit with that impression in prayer. This is not the time to go through your list of things to pray for, but simply to sit in silence before God with that impression and to see what he wants to say to you about it. And then the final P is to plunge. The Bible is a gateway into the kingdom of God. He wants us to enter into it. I think we have a habit of Minimizing the Bible and something we can manage and calling it application, something I put on to this part of my life, when really I think God wants to absorb the whole of us into it. Someone clarify helped to clarify with me after the service that, um, I missed one part, and that's contextualization. I agree. We need to read the Bible in context, but I did not include that intentionally, because there are two ways to read the Bible. And I'm referring to one, and they are very importantly bringing up another aspect of reading the Bible. So here are the two ways. You're reading the Bible either as the Word of God or as the voice of God. Now, I'm making an artificial distinction between the two for the sake of learning, But the Word of God and the voice of God coexist as one. However, we tend to read it one way or the other. So let me tell you what they are. The Word of God is when we take the Bible and study the words on the page. And I don't mean to just reduce the words to ink on a page, but that we are taking the very words that are there, allowing them to be living and active and breathing into our lives, but we are concerned with things like context, right? We're concerned with things like, okay, what's happening here? What is the social background, the historical background, the language barriers, the meaning behind this word, the translation differences, the commentaries, all of that work. That's called Bible study. That's approaching the Bible as the Word of God. But within the Word of God, you can even say beneath it and behind it is the voice of God. This is the part of the Bible that speaks to us. It stirs our hearts and ignites our imaginations. It comforts us in dark times and humbles us in proud times. This is the voice. This is the part that is living because it speaks. It speaks to your context. It speaks to where you are at right now. I bring the two up because we have a tendency and a temptation when we're doing Bible study, to focus only on the Word of God and not to just push the information aside, push all that aside and just let it speak. I know because for years, you know, trying to become the best Bible student I can be, I really emphasized on the Word part, the Bible study part, the context part, and didn't give a lot of breathing room to the voice of the Bible, the voice of God. Um, I think in recent years, I'm developing a better balance, and that's what I was trying to communicate with the acronym of RIP. When God commands us to eat this book, he's not asking us to dissect it. That's what you do when you don't like the meal put on your plate. You cut it up and you cut around the gross parts and you try to eat a little to be polite and then you kind of spread it around to make it look like you're eating it. You know the trick. You've done it before. Eating this book means getting it inside of you so that it can become part of you. It can speak in the deep recesses of your heart. It can fill the void of your soul with echoes of God's voice. It can bring substance, the very voice that spoke creation into being. We want that vibration of sound to ripple among us. That is what we're going for when we rip, read, impressions, prayer and plunge. So it's a very devotional approach, not a very doctrinal approach, but a devotional approach to scripture. But it is true that we need both. And so to have at least a slim, a slight amount of context in the back of your mind, you don't have to be a student or a scholar. You just need to have a little bit of of common sense not to take a passage like Judas went out and hung himself, and because you happen to be depressed, think that God's telling you to do the same thing, that would be a very poor way to read the voice of God and the Word of God. First of all, he wouldn't say that, and second of all, you're, the common sense to say that the context there is not asking you to emulate anything. You don't want to do the things Judas did. That's part of the point of the story, Right? So, I just wanted to clarify some common sense that we we do—we're uh, not just letting the Bible say whatever, because that might be what you want it to say. You're letting it speak, and it's dangerous and risky to let go of your control in Scripture— And sometimes that's what reading it as the word of God or as Bible study sometimes does is we suffocate it and squeeze its message into it must be this because we've scientifically broken down its meaning to a thesis statement. That's great because it helps me understand what I'm reading, all of that work. But we must unscrew the lid a little bit to let it breathe. Breathe to let it roam, to let it have its way. Because while there's a context and the word of God said what it said to a specific people at a specific time, we do believe Hebrews 4.12 that this word is living, it's active, it's speaking, it's dynamic. And the words said there are echoing in every age to every person in every circumstance. So, I hope that you are practicing the RIP method. Some of you may already do it and find, Hey, I've been doing this a long time. And finally, you've got terminology to go with it. I find that's often the case. Uh, some people have already given me feedback about using it and how blessed they've been. So it's really encouraging. I hope that you <laughs> go RIP scripture. The wheel within the wheel. After Ezekiel describes the four faces he saw, it then gets much more challenging, at least it does for me. Ezekiel 1 verse 15. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, Their appearance was like the gleaming of Beryl, and the four had the same likeness. Their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. It describes a little bit more about how they move in any direction. Almost, it seems to be describing them as teleporting. But it's the wheel within the wheel, and that the rims of these wheels have eyes all around. It it just starts to get—the mind can't really hold this anymore, right? We have these four creatures with four faces, and as bizarre as that is—by the way, they have human hands, a bronze body, and calf feet, <laughs> just to throw that in too—as bizarre as that is, we can we can conceptualize that. Even though that may not be literally what it's supposed to look like, we can at least comprehend these images. But for me, the wheel within a wheel is just like, okay, I can imagine like a wheel spinning inside of another wheel, maybe they're going different directions, or maybe it's like a gyroscope, like things like that. I can imagine that, but I, I just can't understand how it fits with the rest, right? Like I understand how a face fits with a creature. But I, I don't get the relation—it's it, just—this is where it just, to me, the vision gets very, very difficult to follow. And, and I think most people agree. And this is where I lose heart and why Ezekiel's always been a difficult read. Um, but someone came up to me after the service and showed me a forklift and the diagram or the graphic that this company used to sell this forklift. Now, yeah, a forklift? Yeah, a forklift. This forklift is omnidirectional, okay? What this forklift can do is move sideways, forward, diagonally, backward, you know, all the directions, and it can spin on its axis at the same time. So it can move backward while spinning left, it can shimmy to the right while spinning to the back, if you ever needed to do that, it can do all these things. And, and, and what, the graphic that it showed were three arrows forming a circle, right? So like the circle of arrows showing like a direction of movement. And then around that circle were arrows pointing outward. I believe there were six or eight of them in any any case, just showing the omnidirection that it can take. So you had a circle of arrows pointing outward around a circle of arrows going in a circle. I really hope that's making sense. But when I saw that, I thought, oh my goodness, here we have the eternal moving flow of God. And the three arrows, although I doubt this company did it to mean this, it reminded me of the Trinity, how the Father is moving in love and adoration and giving praise to the Son. And the Son is doing the same, moving toward the Spirit and the Spirit moving toward the Father. Yet at the same time, this circle is not one-sided because the Father's returning it to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Son and the Son to the Father so that all are giving all of themselves to each other while receiving each other, thus being completely one without losing their identity. This is how you have three in one. I know, complicated, crazy stuff, right? The point isn't to say, can I make logical sense of this? The point is to see that God is something that's moving. He's a being in our midst, and he's always pouring himself out because he never empties, because he's always, while pouring himself out, being refilled with himself at the same time. And all of creation moves through this flow. And the Christian who is awakened to his identity in Christ with the Spirit, of God within him recognizes that he also is ushered through this flow. And then the arrows pointing outward in their own circle, or surrounding the circle, pointing outward. That, when I saw it, it, just immediately said to me, Oh, look at that. God can turn our lives in any direction. So is it possible that in this wheel within the wheel, we see the ever-moving, dancing, dynamic, living God and his love, and that this love and this dynamic dance and this rhythm and this Flow He wants to pour into us can then take our lives in any direction? Is this the concept of the wheel within the wheel? That our God is not limited in any way. He's not only eternal, He's not only overflowing with endless abundance, but there is no hindrance to what He can do or where He can go or where He can take us. I I don't know, but if that's something that the wheel within the wheel can tell us about God, wow, that, that's profound. And that, that you can spend the rest of this year praying with and meditating on that concept. That will take you anywhere. deep time. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 15, toward the end, after Ezekiel had received this vision of God and heard his commission, it says that, Ezekiel talking, I sat there, overwhelmed among them seven days. If reading this for seven minutes overwhelms us, well, Ezekiel's overwhelmed for seven days. Can you imagine processing what he saw? And not just this new concept about God. He experienced whatever it was that God showed him. Seven days to sit with that. I don't blame him. One of the things that may have happened here is that he experienced what some call deep time, what, the same term that Paul used in Galatians 4.4 4, when he said, in the fullness of time, Christ came. So, the fullness of time, deep time, same idea. What is that, you ask? It's the opposite of chronos time, chronological time. Right? The Bible talks about time in two ways. It talks about chronos time, chronological time, and then it talks about deep time, just this endless time, similar to eternal life, which uh, John uses a lot in his gospel. Uh, he, he uses the word zoe in Greek, zoe Life. So let me let me let me talk about Zoe life for a minute, then we'll talk about the fullness of time. Zoe life, you may remember way back in our study in the Gospel of John, that Zoe life we translate to eternal life. Uh, but Zoe, while we think of eternal as being something that's spread, that's stretched out forever and ever, so it's like this longevity of chronological time. Uh what Zoe life also means, it, it includes that, but it also takes that direction and, and spans it the other way, up and down. Or in other words, Zoe life is not just about the breadth of life, but it's also about the depth of life. It's about a deep existence, satisfying existence. Its contrast is bios life, biological life, the mere existence of breath and consciousness, and appetites, and bowel movements, and love, and those kinds of things, right? The things that just kind of make us creatures. We live, we die. But Zoe life, it isn't just love in the sense of reproduction. It's love in the sense of belonging and connection. It's experiencing there's something bigger than me. And Jesus came, John says, to offer that to us now, that we get to experience that deep life. I came to give life, Jesus said in John 10, and that more abundantly. I came that they may have Zoe life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. That's John 10, 10. So deep time or the fullness of time is similar to this deep Zoe life, this full life, Um. If we, if we think about chronos time, chronological time, it kind of goes here and it keeps ticking forward, right? Uh, you can think about spreading butter over bread. And there's this great line in the Lord of the Rings movie where Bilbo confesses that he's starting to feel like butter spread across too much toast. Just it's just it's a great image, right? It's just, it's getting too thin. It's not enough to cover That's not what deep time is like. Imagine if you took Kronos time and you condensed all of it into a single moment. The depth of that moment, when everything comes together and collides right there. That is the fullness of time. That is deep time. That's what it means when the Christ, the eternal Christ, who is the Word, become flesh, the one who is at the beginning with God and created all things with His Word. When He becomes flesh, when He's a baby on earth, when He's a human telling stories and talking to people and touching people, it's as if you take all of eternity and crunch it into a single moment in His That's what we had in Jesus. The eternal Christ crunched into a momentary Jesus. And if you took the same concept with time, everything from the beginning to the end and crunch it into a momentary vision— that could explain what Ezekiel went through as he saw God. And to say that he was overwhelmed for seven days seems like the minimal recovery time. Can we experience this? I think we need to try. What we need to do is we need to learn to trust deep time. We need to learn to trust the time that's beneath this chronological ticking clock, that space we call eternity, that place that God inhabits outside of time. That's what Ezekiel's—the fullness of God right there in front of him. If we can learn to tap into that and trust that and to stop trusting in chronological time— we would be living a deeper life. So easy to get wrapped up in chronological time. I got to be here now. I got to be there then. I'm hungry in 30 minutes. I'm, all these things keep ticking and driving us here and there. And then we're worried and we're concerned about this and that and whatever. But in deep time, you step outside of all of that and just look at it. And you say, <laughs> that mattered? I'm bothered about that? Deep time exists. Just like Zoe life exists, it's just beneath and behind the surface of this thing our senses call reality. The way to get there is to pause. And quite frankly, the reason we applied, if you want to say that, the message with eat this book is I believe the more habitually we sit down to eat this book, we will start tasting, start seeing little glimpses of this fullness, this deep time. Comparing Ezekiel's vision with John's in Revelation chapter 4. In Ezekiel 1, the last verse, verse 28, Ezekiel concludes, after using a lot of words like likeness, the appearance, it was like this, it's as it were, he concludes, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. So Ezekiel is seeing things It's so amazing. He's having a hard time describing them. It's like he feels it. He senses it. It's there. He gets it, but he can't quite translate it. When you read Revelation chapter 4, you do not get any of that striving to explain. John is very direct. I want you to hear the difference. Just read a portion. Revelation 4 verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now when he talks about the one on the throne, he does say there's the appearance of these uh stone colors, but everything else is so much more concrete. Verse four, and the throne around the throne were twenty-four thrones. He didn't say a bow or it seemed to be thrones. No, just there's twenty four and seated on the thrones, there are twenty four elders, and they're clothed not. In something like white garments, but in white garments with golden crowns on their head from the throne came flashes of lightning and so forth. It's, it's much more certain what John is seeing. Is that because Christ had come and Christ was able to, I don't know, mediate what he saw? We don't know. Is it maybe because of the needs? Israel, as Ezekiel, is receiving his vision. Israel's in a place of deep uncertainty. Remember the three boxes in the sermon? You have order, disorder, then you should move on to reorder. Uh, they're definitely in the second box, the disorder stage. And perhaps, uh, perhaps they needed a, the vague vision fit, you know, kind of like, hey, here's what I saw, piece it together and move to reorder. Perhaps. Maybe in John's situation, they needed a much more, as they're facing persecution, maybe they need a much more certain view of God. We don't know, but definitely there's that difference, right? And I think the takeaway is that God has been most clearly revealed to us in Christ, And so that now that Christ has come, John's vision is a bit clearer than Ezekiel's. I think we have the benefit of understanding God in a deeper way than the Old Testament saints did. But there's some significant differences. Um, the, 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 The likenesses are that both of them see cherubim, the creatures, and both of them see God on a throne. But the difference between those similarities stands out to me. In Revelation, John first describes a throne. Then, only after he describes the one on the throne and the throne itself, does he then get to the living creatures, Says around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night never cease to say, holy, 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 and so forth. So, both have four creatures. But John starts with the throne and only then moves the creatures. Ezekiel starts with the creatures and only then moves toward the throne, and it becomes less and less clear the more toward the throne he moves. Interesting, huh? I wonder. I wonder if there's a reason for those perspectives. John is in a situation where the church needed to know Christ was king, not Caesar. And if Ezekiel's people needed to know, God is moving like these creatures with their wheel, within a wheel. He's moving amongst us, even exiled from the land of Jerusalem. It seems to me that those are each appropriate messages, so they're seeing much of the same thing. There's a throne, there's one seated on it, and there are living creatures. The details vary very slightly. And so that's where look, visions are not actual in the presence of God necessarily. You're you're seeing something that's a representation, right? Um, I, as far as we know, like no man can see the face of God and live, except Moses had the opportunity to talk to him face to face, as a friend does with a man. Yet, as God passes glory before Moses, he had to hide him in the cleft of the rock. So even then, we can say that when Moses spoke to God as a man speaks to a man, he didn't not seeing the actual face of God, or if you will, maybe seeing just one face. It's a, you know, the full face. I don't know. But, um, but visions can work like this. It's the similarities that we need to see that show, okay, there's something, there's something behind these images that's symbolic of the nature of God. And, and so, some, like, so yes, there's four creatures and there's a throne. The cherubim, the seat, those are similar. Um, but in John, the eyes are on the creatures. In Ezekiel, the eyes are all over the wheels. Uh, in Ezekiel, the creatures have four wings. In John, they have six wings. In Ezekiel, the four animals are faces on the four creatures. And in John, the four animals each are one of the creatures themselves. So, some minor differences um, but see, God comes to us and he reveals himself to us in our hour of need. So what he does is I don't think it's his plan, nor does he think we need to see all of him at once. He just shows the sliver, you know, his backside, his toe, whatever, whatever we need then. You'll notice that in Revelation, um, John sees Christ in chapter 1. This is the initial vision that this is the revelation that the whole book's about. Uh, it says in Revelation one twelve. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And then it goes on to describe more of what he saw. And again, if taken completely literally a very bizarre image. But what I'm pointing out is that then John leaks this vision into seven letters to his seven churches. And in each of the letters, he's pulling a part of that vision because this is the one he believes that church needs in their hour. Right? So to the angel of the church in Ephesus, he writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Ephesus needed to know that God was walking in their midst. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. They need to know that Christ is the one who's already gone ahead of them into the realm of the dead, and he's conquered. They need to fear nothing in their hour of trial. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's Christ who holds the sword of life and death, the judge of the earth, not the devil, not Caesar. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Speaks of purity. And of course, Thyatira is struggling with Purity. And so, it goes on, and you see that he's leaking the vision to the churches based on their need. And so, we can speculate an awful lot about, you know, what is God like, who has the right this and that and whatever, and of course, it's kind of wrapping back around to the four faces. Um, of course, please don't take literally that God has four faces. It's just an analogy for us to learn of how multi-dimensional he is, Um Yeah, we we can go around and debate all that, but really, really, God shows to us that which we need. So, let us never think we've got the full picture, we've got the full story, we've got the full scoop Our group is better than their group. We're more biblical than their. Of course, there is such a time when some of there is such a thing as some groups don't have a good belief or they aren't very biblical. Of course, that exists. But let us not get arrogant and 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 narrowly look at our group and think we're the best. And please let us not get turn churches into rivalries. I, I also think that that's why sometimes we outgrow some churches and go to other churches. It isn't that you suddenly saw the light and found the right church or the better church. No, no, no. Maybe the way that church helped you connect with God was what you needed at that season of your life, that hour of need. And you outgrew it. Like the puddle jumpers, you outgrew it. The church didn't fail you. You outgrew that church. And maybe even isn't isn't right, because it's not to say that you're superior to that church or that group of believers. It's just a different season. You have an hour of a different need. And so now you stumble upon this church or that church, and it seems to be meeting you where you're at. And so please, let us not get arrogant, thinking that we've got the best pastor or the best fellowship or the best this or that. I'm glad if you love your church and you think it's the best, it means you're probably where you should be but never think it's better than the others. It is simply meeting your need at the moment. Well, that'll wrap up this week's episode of B-Sides. With grace and gratitude, I'm Pastor Brandon McCulloch. Thank you for listening.